Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Stephen Nemesh. We're going to talk about Stephen and Catholicism, why he isn't Catholic, and why you may have reason to doubt Catholicism. So Stephen, what's up? How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I was thinking just as I was driving home from work today, like preparing for this interview, I was like, I should have spent the last week just trying to like grow my mustache out a little bit, but instead I have just kind of like the awkward stubble everywhere. So unfortunately, you, you have to commit to it because before it, before it looks cool, it looks lame. So you have to commit to it and, and, you know, really be clear in your head that this is what you're about. <laughs> we'll see if I ever have that like strength and determination, but I probably won't. Um, but as we get into this, Stephen, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Stephen Nemesh. I have a, a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Arizona State University uh, with a minor in religious studies. I have a master of divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary, and I also have a PhD in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, I studied there under professors Oliver Crisp and Veli Mati Karkainen. Uh, the title of my dissertation was A Constructive Theological Phenomenology of Scripture. Uh, basically, what I was doing in that work was proposing a phenomenological analysis of the act of reading the Bible as scripture, uh, and on the basis of that analysis, making a constructive proposal regarding the relationship between scripture and ecclesial tradition as sources and authorities for theology. Um, so that's my dissertation. Uh, I was an adjunct professor at Grand Canyon University for a few years. Right now, I'm working full-time uh, teaching Latin, middle school and high school Latin at a charter school here in Phoenix. Uh, I'm married to my wife, Rachel. We've been married over a year now. We're expecting a baby at the end of the month of May, beginning of June. So we're very excited about that. Um, you know, I like to eat good food and to hang out with my friends. That's you know, basically about me, I suppose. That's That's what I do. Yeah, it's super helpful. So thanks, Stephen, for kind of going through that. So today we're talking about like Catholicism and Roman Catholicism and kind of like what your take on it is and how like that can help us thinking about like Roman Catholicism. So could you talk a little bit, Stephen, about like your journey and how your views over on Roman Catholicism have changed as times progressed? Sure. Uh, I was very seriously considering conversion to Roman Catholicism, especially in the year 2017. Uh, towards the fall time of 2017, I began attending RCIA. Uh, which is basically the cate catechism class for becoming a Catholic in the church. Uh, and then I decided against it. I decided that I, I should not actually become a Catholic. And a couple of years later in 2019, as I was finishing up the first part of my PhD and beginning to work on my dissertation, uh, certain things were becoming clarified in my mind as to why I do not think that I should be a Catholic and why I'm not a Catholic. Um, so I went from a, from an, antecedent sort of position of sympathy towards Catholicism and even a great interest in Roman Catholicism to now a conviction against it. So, uh, you know, over the course of a few years, I guess, basically I went from being very much interested in Roman Catholicism and being nearly at the point of converting to deciding against it. So were you raised like in a Protestant church or like a Catholic church or like, what was that upbringing like for you? Yeah, my parents are Pentecostals from Romania. Uh, so the majority religion in Romania is Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, and as I've mentioned uh, in other places, for a long time, I did have a kind of a flirtation with Eastern Orthodoxy for something like, I don't know, maybe something like 10 years or so. Um, it went sort of on and off. I always had a kind of a fascination with Eastern Orthodoxy, with the Orthodox ethos, with uh, 
you know, the, the, the general spirit of Eastern Orthodoxy as a, as a, an iteration of Christianity. Uh, but I never, I never got as close to converting to Orthodoxy as I did to Catholicism. Now, like I said, Romania is an Orthodox country. My parents are Pentecostals. Uh, Pentecostalism is a minority religion in, in uh, Romania. Um, so I was raised in the Romanian Pentecostal church. A lot of people, when they hear about Pentecostalism, they think maybe things that are not exactly representative of Romanian Pentecostalism. Romanian Pentecostalism is basically like traditional Baptists, except they also believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So there's no, there's no running around in the church. There's no waving flags. There's no throwing, you know, throwing yourself on the floor. Nothing like that. Uh, I don't think Romanians as Eastern Europeans have it in them to sort of manifest themselves in public in that way. They don't really do that sort of thing. Uh, but basically, you can think of like a sort of a traditionalist, you know, conservative Baptist who also believes in the continuing gifts and work of the Holy Spirit in those ways. That's basically what Romanian Pentecostalism is like. So that was my background. That's what I grew up in. Um, like I said, I was very much interested in Roman Catholicism for a while, and then I decided against it. Uh, right now, I attend with my wife an Anglican, a traditional Anglican church here in Phoenix, uh, I wouldn't say that I identify perfectly as an Anglican, but I do appreciate very much about the Anglican tradition. I appreciate the the way in which they worship. I appreciate, you know, the fact that we take the Lord's Supper every week. I, I very much like the priest at our church. He's a wonderful person, and the people at the church are very wonderful, too. So even if I can't sort of fully commit myself to Anglicanism as such, I still very much enjoy attending that church. And my wife and I have been there for a few years now. Hmm, that's super cool. So what we're going to do now, Stephen, is kind of look at like why aren't you a Catholic and kind of some of your like reasons that you like are against Roman Catholicism now, like you think mm -hmm. it's like not true. So I'd love to just dive into this and leave this open to you, Stephen. Like, why aren't you a Catholic? Sure. Uh, there are a few reasons why I'm not a Roman Catholic. Um, one reason would be that I think that certain things that Roman Catholicism teaches are actually false. Uh, another reason would be that I think that certain things that Roman Catholicism teaches, uh, it is too confident about. So it makes these things into dogmas when I think really that they shouldn't be. They should be at best opinions. Um, and a third reason is that I don't agree with uh, basically the way in which Roman Catholic theology operates. I don't agree with their method for doing theology. So we can kind of go through these things in order, I suppose. Um, with respect to the things that I don't believe are actually true, uh, I do not accept the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Uh, this doctrine says that during the celebration of the Eucharist, after uh, the Eucharistic prayers are uttered, or, or at some point during the prayers or whatever, uh, the substance of the bread and the wine are changed, they're transubstantiated into the substance of Christ's body and blood. Uh, however, they are changed in such a way that all the appearances, all the accidents, so to speak, of bread and wine remain. So as far as your experience is concerned, what you have in front of you is bread and wine, or at least looks like bread and wine. Uh, so you're not going to you know, be able to zoom in at the molecular level and find human blood or anything like that. It's going to be wine in every possible way that it can manifest itself in the world. However, uh, the Roman Catholic teaching is that there is this further dimension of things which is not manifest in the world, which is really like the truest part of them. Uh, and that invisible non-manifest dimension is what gets changed from bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Uh, there are a few reasons why I don't believe that this doctrine is true. 
in the first place, I don't believe that this is the way that scripture talks about what takes place in the Lord's Supper. Um, and I can give a couple arguments for that. So for example, um, a lot of times when people are defending this view of the, the Eucharist, they will point to what Jesus says in John chapter six. Uh, you know, if whoever does not eat my flesh and drink my blood does not have life in them. So people will look at that statement and they'll say, uh, see, Jesus says that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So therefore, you know, later when he institutes the Lord's Supper and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, he must be giving them his actual body and blood uh, under the appearances of bread and wine, so to speak. Um, the reason why I don't believe in this interpretation is on the one hand, I don't think that that actually makes sense of the text. On the other hand, I think that once you clarify in what sense the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ, it no longer makes sense to say that you're eating Christ's body and blood. So let me start with the first point and I'll move on to the second. Um, when in that context, in John 6, uh, Jesus is talking to a group of people for whom he had performed a miracle. He multiplied the fishes and the, the loaves. Uh, and they wanted to make him king. So he leaves, he gets out of there, they go looking for him the next day. And when they find him, Jesus tells them, you are coming to me not because you saw the signs, but because you had your fill of the loaves. Uh, you should be worried about the food that endures for eternal life, which my father will give to you. Uh, then these people ask him, okay, what is that food? And he basically says, you should believe in me. Believe in the one to whom, or, or what is that work that we have to do? Uh, he says, you should believe in the one whom the father has sent. Well, they say, okay, well, what are you going to do? What signs are you going to do so that we believe in you? Now notice how, you know, um, uh, how audacious this question is. They saw the sign, the miracle that he performed, uh, and they go looking for him. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows they just want food. They don't actually care much about him. And he says, if you want the food that endures for eternal life, which my father will give you, you should believe in him who sent me, uh, in, in, in him whom he sent. And they say, okay, well, what sign are you going to do so that we believe in you? They already saw the sign, but when he says to believe in him, they say, okay, what sign are you going to do? So their hearts are not right. Already, Jesus proves to them that they're not in the right state of mind. They don't care so much about him. They care about having a full stomach. And he says, um, well, uh, what does he say? He says, it was not, you know, they give the example of Moses, right? Moses gave our fathers in the desert manna. So what are you going to do so that we can believe in you? And he says, it wasn't. Moses that gave them the man. It was my father in heaven who gives you the bread that comes from heaven uh, and that uh, gives eternal life. And they say, okay, well, give us this bread. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever believes in me will never die. Uh, but they don't like this. They don't like that he says that he comes down from heaven. Uh, and then they push against them. They say, how can this man say that he came down from heaven? Don't we know his mother, his sisters, his brothers, and so on? Uh, and he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven and I, my father sent me into the world to give life and the, the, the food that I will give uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. And then they say, oh, well, how is this guy going to give us flesh to eat? Right? So they start off on the wrong foot and they, get, keep, they keep getting worse and worse and worse as the dialogue goes on. And then when Jesus sees that they don't understand anything that he's saying, that they have no interest in you know, uh, accepting what he's saying, when, they, when he sees this, that he's dealing with a hostile and faithless audience, he insists on the point. And he says, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Um, and so then they get upset at this, they get offended. Now, what is Jesus doing? Does he mean to say that they should actually eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have life? No. If that's what he meant, he could have said that from the beginning. He, he could have said that from the very beginning. You have to, uh, by means of a sacramental union, you know, participate in my uh, humanity and divinity and all that. He says, believe in me. 
All right. I'm coming down to the world to give the life, to give life to the world. Believe in me. That's what the father wants you to do. Um, but they resist his efforts. Every time he tries to explain himself very clearly, they become hardened more and more in their unbelief and in their resistance to him so that by the end, he's just being provocative. He's saying, yeah, not only uh, do you have to believe in me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood also. Um, and then they get upset and then they get offended and so on. Uh, and then they leave. Now, the text also says there, Jesus knew their hearts that they didn't believe in him. Right, So he already knew that there were people who didn't believe in him, that they didn't have the right attitude towards him. They were going to reject what he says. But he speaks provocatively. He says that you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to put them in the position of saying, okay, what do you mean? Right? What he wants from them is just a step towards him. Um, and they don't do that. The apostles, however, do. Right? Jesus looks towards the apostles uh, and he says, aren't you guys going to go also? And Peter says, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter is saying, I don't know what you're talking about, but I can't go anywhere else but you, right? G Peter had the right attitude. The people had the wrong attitude. They thought that he was talking about eating flesh. They thought he was talking about cannibalism. But he also clarifies. He says, uh, the flesh is useless. The flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. Now, notice what is happening here. He says, unless you eat my flesh, you have no life in you. And then he later says, the flesh is useless. It's the spirit that gives life. Now, either he is contradicting himself or else he means to be contradicting the misunderstanding. Right. So he, when he says that you need to eat my flesh in order to have life, he's not talking about eating this. All right. This is what he means when he says the flesh is useless. What he means to say is it doesn't help you any to eat my body. Why would that help you? What is that supposed to do? The spirit gives life. Right. And the words that I've given you are spirit and, and truth. Um, so basically what he is saying, no, you do not have to eat my flesh, right? The flesh is, it would not help you to eat my body. Uh, but the things that I spoke to you, the things that I spoke to you about believing, about me coming from the father, about everybody who believes in me, I will raise them up on the last day. That is what gives life. And so also when we, when Christ says that we should eat his flesh and drink his blood, what he means, it seems to me, is that we should find spiritual nourishment and edification in his sacrifice on, on our behalf. All right. Everybody who is a Christian knows what I'm talking about. What is it? And this is what Zwingli says, for example, in his treatise on the Lord's Supper. What is it when you're at your darkest moment that gives you life and that picks you up? What is it when you are pressed down by sin that instills life into you? Unless it is the sacrifice of Jesus. The fact that this man comes from God and loves you so much that he allows himself to be killed for you so that you can be reconciled to him. Anybody who is a Christian and who hears those words knows the life that Christ is talking about. This life that the flesh and the blood of Christ give to us is this spiritual life. It's the pure joy at being loved by Christ, at being chosen by him, at being, accept by being, at being accepted by him and welcomed by him into the fellowship of God and so on. So when Christ says that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, what he means to say is that we have to find spiritual nourishment and edification in his sacrifice on our behalf. That is the place where we get real food. That's the place that we, where we get the food that lasts, even if we go hungry in our bodies. Nevertheless, we have a food for our spirit in the fact that Christ died for us and that he loves us. Um, so that's how briefly I would understand that passage. It seems to me that when Christ says the flesh is useless, it is the spirit that gives life. He seems to be contradicting the misunderstanding of the crowd. They think that when he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he was talking about this. He means to say, no, the flesh is useless. It's not going to help you to eat my skin and my mu muscles. and all. What is that going to help you? That's nothing. The spirit gives life. And the spirit gives life through the acceptance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. When we look at Christ and what he did for us and we accept him, 
and we claim that for ourselves, then the spirit gives life to us. So that's what I think what he's talking about. So on the one hand, I don't think that that view of the Eucharist is a good interpretation of scripture. On the other hand, it seems to me that if you, if you clarify in what sense Christ is supposed to be present in the Eucharist, it will no longer make sense to say that we're eating him. Okay, and there are two things that I want to point out. The first point is this. The mode of presence of Christ in the Eucharist, according to the transubstantiation view, is called illocal or non-local. Non, uh, all right. So the idea is that Christ is present in the Eucharist while not being present there in a place. Okay, so even though Christ is present in the Eucharist, he's not present there where the bread and the wine are. And that's because you can go looking for him. You can zoom in with a microscope. You will never find his body and blood. Okay, so he's not present there in space as in a place. He's, his presence is called illocal, non-local presence. The second point is this. Nothing that happens to the host, to the bread and the wine, affects Christ at all. Christ is utterly unaffected by the things that happen to the bread and the wine. And that is because uh, in the Catholic tradition, Christ's body after his resurrection is invulnerable or impassable. He can no longer suffer at all. So nothing that happens to the host affects Christ at all. Hmm. Now, let me ask you a question, okay? Christ says that you have to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. Okay, so let's take him literally. Let's say, okay, yeah, you have to you have to actually eat his flesh and drink his blood. However, when it comes to celebrating the Eucharist, you say that Christ's flesh and blood are not actually there. They're not there where the bread and the wine are. They're not in a place. When you pick up the bread, you are not picking up Christ's body. When you put the bread in your mouth, Christ's body is not go going into your mouth because he's not there in a place. He's not there spatially. When you swallow, he's not going down into your stomach because he's not in the, the place where the host is, okay? So how can you eat something if it is not there where the eating is taking place? All right, this is where that saying comes. You can't eat your cake and have it in the hand too. Why is it that you can't eat your cake and have it in the hand? Because if you're eating it, it's not in your hand anymore. It's in your mouth, <laughs> right? And if it's in your hand, then it's not in your mouth. So in order to eat something, it has to be there where the eating is taking place. But according to the Roman Catholic understanding of the mode of Christ's presence in the Eucharist, he is not there where the eating is taking place. So therefore, how is he being eaten? All right, so notice what's happened. At the beginning, the idea was we have to take Christ literally. When he says we eat his flesh and drink his blood, that's what we have to take him to mean. But then you start raising all these questions. Okay, well, if we're eating his flesh and drinking his blood, is that cannibalism? Is Christ's body losing mass every time you know, you're eating him? Uh, is he digested? Does he go into your stomach and you like take nutrients out of his flesh? Do you like you know expel him later on when you go to the bathroom? All these questions, in order to answer all these questions, the real presence tradition makes all these qualifications to the exact sense in which Christ is present in the Eucharist. And the biggest qualification of all is to say that he is not present there in space in the place where it's happening, right? So because he's not present there, uh, therefore you are not chewing on his flesh. He doesn't feel you when you take a bite into the Eucharist. He doesn't, he's not, you know, burned by your stomach acids or anything. And he's also not expelled later on because he's not there, right? So that's how you avoid all those unsavory consequences. But at the same time, if he's not there, how are you eating him? In what sense is this eating? Right, so you said at the beginning that we have to actually eat Christ, but then by the time you made all the philosophical qualifications to your theory, that's not an eating anymore, right? What's happening is you're eating something. Uh, you can't even say that it's bread anymore because it's just the accident, it's just the appearance of bread. That is going into your mouth and down into your stomach and so on, but Christ is not doing that because he's not there. So in no sense are you eating Christ in any literal way. Now the, the response will be, okay, yeah, obviously you're not literally eating Christ. You are eating him in some non-literal way. 
But that's what my interpretation says also. You are eating Christ non-literally in the sense that you find edification and joy and spiritual strength and nourishment in his person and in his sacrifice. So if we already admit that we are not eating Christ literally, okay, why do I have to believe all this weird stuff about substantial presence and illocal presence and, and substance separated from accidents and so on? Why do I have to believe all that weird stuff? Why can't I just take the much easier reading and say that what Christ means is that... Um, we should find spiritual nourishment and edification and a sacrifice on our behalf. So here's, you know, just one example on the topic of the Eucharist. First of all, I don't think that it's a good interpretation of the scriptural passage. And second of all, I think that once you understand what this doctrine is trying to say and the exact mode of presence that is being posited in the Eucharist, you no longer have any connection to what the text could be talking about. Right. You would never mm -hmm. have any sense if Christ says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, that he's talking about something which actually is not eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Right. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's a bad interpretation of scripture. On the other hand, once you make all the philosophical qualifications, you are so far from the way that scripture talks about that thing that it's no longer obvious that you're talking about the same thing at all. You're, you're talking about something else. Um, so mm -hmm. that's that's one example. Now, okay. here's an here's another example. OK, so this was an example of something that I think is false about uh Roman Catholic teaching. Here's an example of how I think Roman Catholic theology operates in a way that is bad. Because the mm -hmm. response will be, listen, the whole tradition of the church affirms this. Everybody from the beginning has always affirmed the doctrine of the real presence. That's what, for example, Peter Kreft says when he talks about his conversion to Catholicism. He says, I was surprised to learn that for the first thousand years of church history, everybody affirmed the real presence. And the only people who ever denied it came much later and they were immediately branded heretics. So he talks about it as if everybody's always believed this. I will note one thing. In the first place, it doesn't matter if everybody's always believed this because opinion is one thing and the truth is another, right? Everybody could have believed that the earth, that the sun revolves around the earth. That didn't make it true. There, everybody could have believed at one point that the earth is flat. That wouldn't make it true. Everybody believed for a long time that there are only four elements. That's not true. Everybody believed for a very long time that women don't make any contribution to the reproductive process except to provide a kind of a, a, a home for the baby to grow, right? But that's actually not true. Women provide half of the genetic material for the child. And people didn't know that. They believed that the women just provided a place for the seed to grow. People believe all kinds of things. And if you go back in time, the majority of people, you know, had some opinion. And then later we found out that it's false. So even if it's true that all the people in church history believe this, that doesn't make it true. They could have been wrong. But notice... Basically, Roman Catholic theology is like committed to a particular tradition, all right? There's a tradition that develops in time. There are certain figures that become especially prominent in this tradition. And Roman Catholic theology is committed to this tradition and takes it for granted, all right? In the first place, I don't think that that's just the a right way to go. I don't agree that what should guide our thinking about things is the tradition that we happen to belong to. What should guide our thinking about things are the things themselves. The thing that I'm talking about, that's what determines whether what I say is true or false, not whether there are people in my tradition who agree with me or not, right? Yeah. So the, the relation between what I say and what somebody else says doesn't matter. What matters is whether what I say accords with the thing itself. But the second point is also that it's not obvious at all that all the people in the tradition of the church actually said these things. There are, for example, passages in... One great example is the Didache, all right? The Didache is a document, basically like a document that describes church order and how to do things in the church. Uh, and the document itself is probably from the second century, but scholars say that at least some of the material in the document is very early, from around the time of Paul and James in the 60s. Now, if you read the Didache, 
it talks about the Eucharist. And the only thing that it ever says about the Eucharist is that it, the Eucharist is a meal, a full meal, where Christians gather and they give thanks to God for the salvation that he accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds a lot like what's going on at the Baptist potlucks and the Protestant churches, right? Mm -hmm. There is no mention of the bread and the wine as the body and blood of Christ. There is no notion of a change that takes place. There is no, you would never get the idea reading only the Didache that the, the Eucharist involves this real presence or transubstantiation or anything like that. Um, so when you read the with the Didache, which is very early, there's nothing in there about the real presence. Now there is a mention of the of the Eucharist as a sacrifice in the Didache, and a lot of times Roman Catholic theologians or apologists or internet you know uh, internet Catholics will say, look, it talks about it as a sacrifice, therefore it's the Mass. But that is just a very uh, weak argument, I think, because in the New Testament, everything that we do as Christians is a sacrifice. Paul says, offer your bodies therefore as a living sacrifice to God. Uh, when the Philippians send a gift to Paul while he's in prison, he says, this was this gift that you sent me was like a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God, right? Uh, Paul says, I'm ready to be poured out like a, like a burnt offering or a, a fragrant offering to God, right? So everything that we do as Christians is a sacrifice to God in this sense. We do things mindful of God and with the purpose of pleasing him or being obedient to him. And the Eucharist, the celebration of the Lord's Supper is also a sacrifice, but it is not a sacrifice that requires the real presence of Christ. In the Old Testament, there were sacrifices called Thanksgiving sacrifices, which people could offer in basically just as a celebration of God's goodness, all right? God did something great for you. You got a job or your baby was born or you got out of trouble. Everything was good. You could go bring an animal or even just bring flour or any kind of thing to the, to the, to the temple. You can sacrifice and then you can sit there in the temple and eat it with God. That was a sacrifice. It's called the Thanksgiving sacrifice. Okay, there is no propitiation of your sins. Not, that thing that you sacrificed is not for the forgiveness of your sins. It's just so that you can sit down and have a meal with God and to thank him for something. That's the sort of sacrifice that the Didache is talking about. When we gather as Christians, we sit down, we have a meal, we say thank you to God uh, for the salvation that he's offered and for everything that he offers for us, and then we sit down and eat. So that's the sense in which the Eucharist is a sacrifice in the Didache, not some notion of Christ being really present and you're time traveling back to the crucifixion of Christ or anything like that. And this notion of the Eucharist as sacrifice is also what you find in Irenaeus. Okay, so let's fast forward from the Didache to about the year 180 with Irenaeus. Irenaeus describes the Eucharist as a sacrifice. But when you read what Irenaeus says about it, he's very clear that basically Christ at the at the Last Supper, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he taught the disciples to give thanks for food to God, for creating the world and for the food that we have. Uh, and he says that this is a way in which we show ourselves to be grateful to God and we're not fruitless. Okay, so the Eucharist is a sacrifice in the sense that the church gathers and it has a meal together and it offers thanks to God for created things. Um, so the sense in which the Eucharist is a sacrifice for the Didache, for Irenaeus, uh, etc., is a thanksgiving. We gather in order to say thank you to God for this food that he offers and also for the salvation that we that we have through Jesus Christ, uh, and then we sit down and eat. That's the sense in which the, the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Now, people will also say, yeah, but Irenaeus talks about how the body and blood, uh, and, you know, and so on. Actually, there's something going on here. Uh, <clears throat> 
people assume that when you read Irenaeus or Justin Martyr or whatever, and they talk about the Eucharist, they have to be talking metaphysically. In other words, what they have to be basically talking about the being of things. So when Irenaeus says that the bread and the wine, uh, which nourish our bodies, is the body and blood of Christ, they're assuming that he's talking metaphysically, that you know, that's what they are at the deepest real level. But that's just an assumption. And there's, it's not obvious that that's true. It's also possible to understand Irenaeus as speaking uh, in what we might call a symbolic or phenomenological manner. And in that sense, he would be describing the meaning of the things involved in the ritual. He's not talking about what they are. He's talking about what they mean within the context of the ritual. Uh, and so when he says that the bread and the wine, uh, which nourish our bodies, are the, the body and blood of Christ, he's talking about the fact that they are the representations, the images. What they mean for us is that they are Christ's body and blood. That doesn't mean they really are. That means that what they mean for us. Just like, for example, when you go to the theater and the director says, action, the person on the stage is no longer the actor. It's now Hamlet, right? So it's no longer whatever his name might be. It's now the character in the story. So once the director calls for action, then the actor becomes Hamlet. Not really, because Hamlet is a fictional character, but in terms of the ritual itself, his meaning is now different. I'm no longer thinking about him as the actor. I'm thinking about him as Hamlet. So also, when Irenaeus talks about the ritual of the Eucharist, and he says, after the, pr the prayers are made, uh, the bread and the wine, which nourish our bodies, are the, are the body and blood of Christ. Um, he's talking about the way that we think about these things in the, in the ritual. He's saying after we pray for the food, uh, we no longer think about it as just bread and wine. We think about it as the body and blood of Christ. That's the meaning that it has for us. It's the symbol of Christ's body and blood. Now, somebody will ask me, why would he say that? Why does he even care uh, to say, you know, to, to make this symbolic interpretation? Why would he be speaking symbolically? Well, because in context, Irenaeus is arguing against Gnostic heresies that denied that Christ had an actual body and blood. Hmm. And, they actually, and they actually denied that our bodies are saved. These persons believe that when we die, our bodies dissolve into the ground and our spirits alone go to be with God. So only the spirit or the soul is saved. The body is lost forever. Irenaeus is trying to prove that this is not the way that Christians think about salvation at all. And so he will point constantly to the involvement of the body in the ritual in order to show that the body also is involved with this interaction with God and God does not leave the body behind. One way in which he points to this fact is when he repeatedly says that the bread and the wine uh, nourish our bodies and blood. Okay, so if we, when we sit down and we have a meal with God, we have food that God himself made, and this food nourishes our body. So how can we say that God doesn't save our bodies? How can we say that God doesn't care about our bodies and that these bodies don't matter when he made the food by which our bodies are nourished, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Irenaeus is appealing to the symbolism of the ritual in order to prove that the body also participates in salvation. And the reason why we know, or why I say we can know that he's reading symbolically is because he also gives other arguments when he's not talking about the bread and the wine being the body and blood of Christ. Uh, but he still shows that, listen, if you think that the body is not saved, that the father of, of Christ is not the creator of the material world, like some of the heretics will say, then the ritual of the Eucharist makes no sense. He says, for example, if you say that the father of Christ, to whom we give thanks in the Eucharist, is not the creator of the material world, then that means that we're taking things from somebody else and giving them to God as if he wants somebody else's property. Right, that's an argument that, that Irenaeus gives. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that argument have anything to do with the metaphysics of the bread and the wine? No, it has to do with the fact that we are giving thanks to God for these things, but at the same time, you're saying that the God we're thanking is not the one who made these things. Then why? 
right? Does he need these things? Does he want somebody else's property? What sense does it make when we offer the Eucharist to give thanks to God for these things? And yet at the same time, we say that the God we're thanking is not the one who created these things. Mm. Now, here's another point to notice. This is what goes unmentioned, but this is so significant. The heretics that Ar Irenaeus was arguing against themselves celebrated the Eucharist. They also celebrated the Eucharist. They also would get together, they would have a meal, they would give thanks to God, and then they would sit down and eat. Okay, so Irenaeus is saying, listen, you and I are both celebrating the same ritual. How can you say then, if we both have the same ritual, that the God we are thanking is not the God who made these things? Like, like Marcion said, for example. Because if you say that, this ritual makes no sense, right? So he's arguing from the symbolic content of the ritual itself, the, the, the ritual actions, the, the process of the ritual. He's arguing from the symbolic content of this ritual to show that certain theological opinions are excluded. One opinion that is excluded is the idea that God, the Father, is not the creator of the material world. Because if we say that, then we're offering him things that don't belong to him. And that's, we're like stealing things from the creator God in order to give them to the, to the higher God, who is Christ's Father. Another opinion that he excludes is the opinion that the body is not saved. Because if God is the one who created all these things, and if he feeds us with this food, and if when we offer the Eucharist in the church, we're sitting down and eating these things, and they're nourishing our bodies, how can you say that the body is not saved? Our interaction with God involves the body. So if we interact with God through the body, then God saves the body also. He's not going to leave the body behind. So the discussion is very long, and there are a lot of things that could be said here. But basically, another point that I want to make uh, in response to the question, why am I not Catholic, is because in the first place, Catholic theology operates on a method that does not make sense, right? Mm -hmm. Majority opinion does not make truth. You can have everybody in the world believe something. It can still be false. Uh, but in the second place, it's not even obvious that the earliest sources in the church believe the things that the Catholic Church says they do, right? Mm -hmm. One example would be the Eucharist. The Didache has no notion of the real presence. Uh, Irenaeus, it seems to me, is clear that when he talks about the Eucharist, he's talking about its symbolic content, and he's not making metaphysical statements. Um, we could also talk about things like apostolic succession, right? Here's another, here's another point that I think is worth making. According to contemporary Roman Catholic teaching on apostolic succession, a bishop of a church has to be able to trace his ordination by means of other bishops all the way back to an apostle. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's the notion of apostolic succession. You have a bishop who was ordained by this bishop, who was ordained by that bishop, and this chain goes all the way back to the apostles. Yeah. Now, if you read the earliest sources, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Didache, Clement, Nowhere in any of these sources will you ever find the notion that a bishop has to be ordained by another bishop. They don't say that. All right. If you look at Clement, Clement says that the apostles, before they died, appointed bishops in the church, and they left the instruction that if these persons should die, then somebody else should take their place. All right. But he, does, he doesn't say that this person who takes their place has to be ordained by another bishop. He doesn't say mm -hmm. that. All he says is that somebody has to be in charge. All right. The apostles knew that it would be a bad situation in the church if there was nobody in charge of a congregation. So when this guy dies, let somebody else who is trustworthy take his place. But that person who is trustworthy doesn't have to be ordained by another bishop. And in the first place, at the earliest stages of the church, you can't even take for granted that this would be possible. You could be the only Christians for 100 miles in every direction. How then are you going to run your church if your bishop dies, if he's martyred, for example? Right? Are you just not going to have a bishop because there's nowhere around to ordain? No, you just choose somebody else, somebody who's trustworthy. He can be the bishop. right? And in the Didache, in Didache chapter 15, verse 2, it says, appoint for yourselves 
bishops, and deacons, right? It gave all these instructions about what to do about itinerant apostles. What if an apostle or a prophet comes to visit your church? How long should you keep him? How can you tell if he's legit or if he's fake? Uh, and then after all that discussion, it says, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons because they will do the work of the apostles and the prophets for you. So notice what the Didache says. Listen, take care of yourselves. Don't depend on other people coming by because you don't know if he's going to be a trickster or if he's legit. P pick people from your own church to be a bishop or mm. to be a deacon and take care of yourselves. So already there, when you have the notion of bishops being assigned in the churches, there is no mention of the fact that a bishop has to be ordained by another bishop. Now, it is true that later on in the history of the church, this was the practice. Okay, so anytime you would have the selection of a new bishop, other bishops from various churches would be there and they would be there for the ordination. That's true that it takes place later. But in order to have that, you need to have this whole federate, you know, this whole federation, this whole network of churches. And you didn't have that from the beginning because you might only have like a family of Christians in a whole town. So you cannot have that system from the beginning. From the beginning, you need to have individual congregations that are capable of running themselves, uh, more or less. Another point, Irenaeus, when he talks, for example, about the bishops of the church at Rome, or when he talks about the bishops in the various churches that were founded in his day in, by the apostles, you will see in Irenaeus statements of this sort. First, this person was bishop. He was appointed by Paul. Then this person was bishop. Then that person, then that person, then that person. But what you will never see Irenaeus say is this person was ordained by a bishop as this one, by this one. Uh, this person was ordained by bishop as bishop by this one. This person was ordained by bishop as that one. And that one was ordained by a bishop by Paul. Irenaeus has no mention at all of who ordained who. All he says is that in various churches, you can name exactly who was the lead pastor of the church, basically, all the way back to an apostle. But he never mm -hmm. says anything about who ordained who. Um, he doesn't mention it at all. Why? Either because there was no practice of bishops ordaining other bishops during his day, or else even if that was the practice, it didn't mean anything to him. It was inconsequential for him that a bishop was ordained by another bishop. That doesn't matter. Think also of Tertullian. Okay, Tertullian is writing later than, than um, Irenaeus. He has a work called Prescription Against the Heretics. And in chapter 32 of that work, he says, um, let the heretics, you know, unroll the, 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 the indexes of all their bishops and who has been bishop all the way back to an apostle, right? So if they, if they claim to have apostolic teaching, which some of them did, then let's see who's been the leader of your church going all the way back to an apostle because the other churches can do that. Even if you could do that, he says, it wouldn't matter because the things that you are saying are so ridiculous, no apostle could possibly have said them. But on the other hand, he says, and this is the important part, those heretical churches who claim to have the teaching of the apostles will be put to shame by the churches that are being founded in his day. So this is like in the 200s. The churches that are being founded in his day cannot trace their founding to an apostle or an apostolic man. Right? So it wasn't Paul, it wasn't a friend of Paul's who founded those churches. They cannot trace their founding to an apostolic man or an apostle. And yet, nevertheless, they are counted apostolic because they agree with the apostolic doctrine. Now, notice what Tertullian does not say. He does not say the persons in these churches, their bishops can trace their ordination by means of other bishops all the way back to an apostle. Why doesn't he say that? Again, there are two reasons. Either this thing was not happening in his day so that you could have a church starting up someplace and the, there would be a bishop of that church, but he wasn't ordained by another bishop. Or else, even if that was the practice in this day, it meant nothing to him. 
All right, it did not mean anything that you could trace your ordination by means of other bishops all the way back to an apostle. That is totally inconsequential for him. It's inconsequential for Irenaeus. It's inconsequential for Tertullian who don't say anything about this, okay? So why does it matter to Roman Catholic theology? Because they think that by your ordination, through your ordination by another bishop, some sort of special charism is being passed on to you. Some sort of special gift of the Holy Spirit is being given to you through ordination to the episcopate, to the position of bishop. Uh, and this gives you some special standing among all other Christians uh, in order to lead the church. It gives you a special help of the Holy Spirit to rule uh, in the church and to, to serve your function as a leader. Now, if the earliest sources don't mention that this person was ordained bishop by somebody else, that means that they did not have any notion of a charism. They do not think that there is anything about the position of bishop that makes you specially suited to lead the church or specially authoritative in matters of theology. Rather, their thinking is that you have to already be suited for the job in order to get it. And if you look at the Bible, that's what the Bible says. When you look at Paul, Paul's letter to Titus or to Timothy, all right, he says anybody who should be a bishop or anybody who wants to be a deacon should have a firm grasp of the word and be capable of teaching. Now, let me ask you a question. If you have to be capable of teaching already in order to be lifted up to the position of bishop, that means that you're not getting that ability simply by being a bishop. Having the ability is the precondition to your ordination to the episcopate. It is not given to you in your ordination. Mm -hmm. So that was the order. And if you read Irenaeus, he makes it very clear that there is nothing about the position of bishop that entails that you are especially authoritative in matters of theology. You can look in uh, Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 3, Section 1. He says that the apostles took great care when they appointed the bishops of their churches uh, because they knew that if the bishops would fall away, it would be a disaster for the church. So how can the apostles in their minds be thinking that they're passing on a special charism to these persons whom they're appointing as bishops if they know that they might pick the wrong person, right? And the <laughs> wrong person might become bishop and then it would be trouble. So no, there is no notion of a charism that belongs to the position of bishop as such. That doesn't exist in the earliest sources. It doesn't exist in scripture. It's an idea that comes later on. And the authority, the ecclesial authorities of later generations use this notion of an Episcopal charism to justify their authority in determining what other people are supposed to think in the church. But let me ask you a question, Zach. Yeah. If people from the beginning thought that there was nothing special about being a bishop, nothing about the fact that you're a bishop made you an authority in theology, okay? Later on, people began to say, well, because I am a bishop, I am an authority in theology, and therefore I have the right to determine what the church believes. In con Doesn't it seem to you that if you're claiming a power now that the earlier people in your position didn't claim that something is off? Doesn't, yeah, it, seem to, doesn't it seem to you that like something has gone wrong here? Now you want to be able to just call the shots because you're in charge. Instead of having to prove yourself worthy of the position that you have, you want your position to, to be proof enough that you're worthy. So it seems to me that something went off the rails as Christian theology moved forward. Something went off the rails. Mm. You had all these notions about metaphysics, real, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, these things that were not there from the beginning and that don't make any sense, but they suddenly become very authoritative. You have the notion that like now the mere fact that you're a bishop in the church gives you an authority rather than the fact, you know, earlier generations said that there's nothing about the position of bishop as such that makes you authoritative uh, as, a, as a theologian or anything. Um, it seems to me like just something went off the rails, okay? From the, from the beginning of the church to the, about the three, four, five hundred, 
something bad happened. The, the, the very structure of the church began to change. The way the church understood itself began to change. And something went off the rails. And Roman Catholicism is basically this later church Mm -hmm. that began to take control of things, this later way of understanding that began to take control of things and it's established itself now and it's become authority and it reads its own theology back into the past. What it says is not what the earliest sources say, uh, but it reads these earliest sources in light of its own thinking and it claims them as authorities for themselves and it says, look, people have always believed like we do. In fact, that's not true, but they claim that in order to give themselves prestige and to claim an authority that they don't actually have. So... I've spoken for a very long time now. I've talked, but basically these are these this is I think a way of illustrating the, my problems, right? In the first place, I think Roman Catholicism teaching teaches things that are not true, like its doctrine of the Eucharist. Uh, in the second place, I think Roman Catholicism teaches certain things that may be true, but they are not worth making dogmas out of. For example, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, her assumption into heaven, the veneration of icons. Those opinions may be true, but it doesn't seem to me that there is firm enough evidence for them to demand that people believe them. Uh, and then in the third place, I don't agree with the way that Roman Catholic theology functions. It functions basically by means of uh, appeal to tradition. And I think that that's irrelevant because I think that what really matters is whether or not our opinions are true. And the only thing that make our opinions true are the things themselves and not the tradition that we happen to belong to. Um, and then there's all this trouble about Roman Catholic interpretation of the earliest sources. That's a very long discussion, but I will stop talking now. I'll give you a chance to say something. That's <laughs> yeah. a, a sort of a, a brief presentation of some problems that I have. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I like how you kind of got those three points down and looking at like um, the first idea of like potentially like false Catholic teaching and then like them being overconfident and then just like their overall method of doing theology. So that's super helpful and like laying out this discourse. So I'd be curious then, Stephen, at this point, like how do we make like progress then looking at like this like Catholic, like Protestant Orthodox dialogue? Because um, obviously mm -hmm. you have you problems laid out and I'm sure there's responses and you have responses and just goes on like ad infinitum. Yeah. So, like, how would you kind of say we can make progress in like thinking and talking about these things? Well, if I, if I were being snarky, I would say that the way to make progress is for Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox to repent of their <laughs> dogmatic sectarianism and to, and to, you know, loosen the grip a little bit, to give up on some of the things that they claim to know. Uh, they mm -hmm. don't have to stop believing them, but they have to stop claiming them as dogmas. Um, you know, so for example, in Eastern Orthodoxy, the veneration of icons, you are not an Orthodox unless you venerate icons. Now, for me, whether or not it's appropriate to venerate icons is not something that clear. And I don't agree that the church has the right to just lay down the rules in any old way that it wants. If you look, for example, at the apostles, all right? So people will say, look, Peter, you know, Peter and the apostles were given the right to bind and to loose. But if you look at the way that they exercise their authority to bind and loose, it doesn't look anything like the way that the later church does. I'll give you an example. Peter and the apostles, when they exercise their authority in the church, they are always following the prior guide, guidance and lead of God. So let's ask this big question. How is it now that you and I as Gentiles can be members of the church? How is it that we can be baptized and be Christians and we don't have to become Jews? Because Peter one day had a vision from God where some animals were coming down on a blanket and he was being told to eat them. And he says, no, I've never eaten these sorts of things. And God says to Peter, what I have made clean, don't call unclean. And then after that vision goes away, the Holy Spirit tells him, hey, go with these people who are going to come to your house because you have to preach the gospel to them. And then when he goes to this house of Gentiles, he tells them, I know, you all know that it's unlawful for a Jew to visit a Gentile like this, but God has taught me not to make distinctions between people. 
So I'm here. What do you want from us? Uh, and Cornelius says, well, you know, I had a vision from an angel and he said that you would preach a message for me. And then Peter says, now I know that God shows no partiality, but anyone who does what is, is right is acceptable to him. And then he begins preaching the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes down on these Gentiles. And other Jews are with Peter and they see this happen also. And then Peter says, oh, well, now that they've received the Holy Spirit just like us, who, who can stop them from being baptized? So let's go and baptize you guys. Peter leaves. Some people call him into question. They say, hey, Peter, we heard that you went to a Gentile's house. What's that about? And he says, listen, I had this vision. Then the Holy Spirit told me to go there. And then when I started preaching the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And he says, if God gave them the Holy Spirit, just as he gave us when we first believed, who am I that I could hinder God? And they, and they said, yeah, I guess it seems right. The God has given repentance even to the Gentiles. And then they have the conference, you know, the council at Jerusalem. And they decide, yes, the Gentiles are in the church. We don't have to impose any further burdens on them. Why did they decide that? Because God himself had made clear what he wants. He gave Peter the vision. He gave him a message from the Holy Spirit. And he sent the Holy Spirit to these Gentiles while the gospel was preached before they became Jews. Before they became Jews, before they even had the opportunity to take up everything that being a Jew means, they received the Holy Spirit from God. So God accepts them. So therefore, the church, following the lead of God and on the basis of what God plainly and publicly does, says the Gentiles are in. God has made it clear. Mm. Now, the later church doesn't function like this. The, for example, the arguments given at the, at the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 why should we allow the veneration of icons and the use of icons in the in the church? The arguments given, if you read, for example, Ambrosius Giacalis' book, uh, Icons of the Divine or something like that, Images of the Divine, uh, he'll say the majority of the arguments and the substance of the argument for the iconophile position was that, look, these icons are everywhere. The iconic tradition has so many holy people. Clearly, right? This tradition can't go wrong. God guides the church. Look at where we've ended up. It must be right. <laughs> mm. Is this the same? Is it all the same, right? It's one thing to see Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. There is nothing like that in, in the case of the icons. Um, Leo the, I think it's Leo the third, the Emperor Leo the third. He has this wonderful question. Who ever taught us to make and to venerate images? And there is no answer to that question because there's no command from Jesus to do that. There's no command from any apostle to do that. There are no clear testimonies from authoritative figures in the absolute earliest sources to do this sort of thing. To the contrary, if you read people like Origen, who's writing in the second, third century, um, Origen talks as if he never saw an icon in his life. He talks as if he'd never heard of Christians making icons in, the, yeah. in his book, Contra Celsum. So this, I, this iconographic tradition just sort of appears over time, but because it's so popular and because it, you know, so many holy people are, yeah, it must be right. That is not the way that the apostles did theology. The apostles let in the Gentiles into the church on the basis of clear directives from God. It could not get any clearer than seeing the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. But there is mm. nothing like that in the case of this notion of icons and all these other doctrines that appear later in the church. The difference is only this. The later church basically takes whatever opinion becomes extremely widespread, it must be right because God leads the church into all the truth. Right? And obviously we are the church only. The people who disagree with us are not the church. Yeah. So because all Christians all throughout the world have come to believe that uh, you know, venerating icons is appropriate, therefore it's, it's God's guidance. Uh, because everybody seems to believe in the real presence of Christ, therefore it's God's guidance. Because um, 
you know, everybody believes in the Immaculate Conception of Mary or in, in her assumption into heaven because all of us believe that now, therefore it's dogma. God has guided us to this conclusion. That's not true. Only if you take your preferred people as the church can you come to that conclusion. All the people mm -hmm. that disagree with you are also the church. You don't think so because they disagree with you, but that doesn't make them not the church, right? Yeah. So notice how these traditions function. They take themselves for granted and everybody who disagrees is on the outside. That's not the way I think things should operate. It seems to me that if anything is the measure and standard, it is Christ himself. And then after Christ, it's the apostles and the things that the apostles teach us, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. And we constantly have to be measuring ourselves against Christ and the apostles. We don't just take ourselves for granted as if God is necessarily on our side. Um, so uh, it seems to me that the way forward for theology is no longer to take our traditions for granted, no longer to have these arguments about all these purported authorities and the church has always believed this stuff. No, we have to let the things themselves that we are talking about be our guide, okay? Uh, mm -hmm. If we want to know what is the appropriate doctrine of justification. Well, what does Paul say? It doesn't matter what all these other people said because they are also just commentators on Paul, right? So if they if they can bring something to light that we don't notice, that's great. But just because Augustine said it, just because some person said it doesn't make it true, right? We have to think, we have to turn to the thing itself that we're talking about. That's what has to be our guide. Um, and so long as we care about the thing itself, we are not committed, you know, uh, you know, uh, white-fisted, you know, uh, blood in our face. We're not committed at all costs to the tradition because our yeah. tradition could be wrong. We should adjust our tradition in light of the thing that we're studying and not, you know, take our tradition for granted and just impose it on the thing that we're studying. Uh, mm. So that, I think, is the way forward for theology. It has to be about the things we're talking about, not about propagating a tradition of ideas or anything like that. Mm. Well, that's so helpful, Stephen, and I'm so grateful for this conversation. And is there any kind of like last thoughts or things you want to get off your chest with regards to like Catholicism or anything else um, before we wrap up here? You can admit you're secretly a Catholic after all this, too. Um, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I am. A, <laughs> I am actually a Jesuit, and I've, I've been I've been sent by the Catholics to you know to discredit the Protestants, come up with all these <laughs> ridiculous opinions. No, I. Um, I think that I more or less covered it. I'm I'm sorry. I think I, I rambled on for a bit there. And oh, no, I, no. I started, it was really clear. Talking, like, but... you were really clear. Like, I liked how you kind of introduced your three points at the beginning because I think it helped you. It was clear and you followed sequentially. So don't worry about that. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, I think that this is like the summary of it. I think that Roman Catholicism teaches things that are false. I think that Roman Catholicism teaches things as dogmas, which are really just opinions at best. I think that the way Roman Catholic theology functions is not good. It's basically just the propagation of a tradition. It's not actually, you know, truthful discourse about things. It's just propagating ideas. Um, I think that the Roman Catholic interpretation of early church history is not founded. I don't think actually that the earliest church believed the things that the Roman Catholic church does. Um, I can see how Roman Catholicism developed out of that tradition, but that's not the same thing as saying that the earliest tradition was Catholic. I don't think that's true at all. I think the earliest tradition actually looked rather more Protestant. Um, and what's the way forward for theology? How can these discussions between Catholics and, and uh, Orthodox and Protestants go forward? The way forward is to allow the thing that we're talking about to be the final measure. All right. Uh, if we're talking about what scripture means, scripture is the final standard of that. All right. Other people that come later, they might be useful to the extent that they can shed light on scripture for us, but they are not the thing we're talking about. We're talking about scripture. So it's always the thing itself that dictates what we say about it. Um, and so for that reason, we also have to hold our traditions with kind of an open palm to some extent. Uh, 
you know, I can take my traditional ideas and just impose them on the world, but that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm right. Uh, I have to allow my ideas to be guided and directed by the things that I'm talking about rather than just taking my ideas as a filter and just applying them on the, on the things, you know, willy nilly. So that, that in brief is sort of like my problem with Roman Catholic theology and the way out of it, as far as I see. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Stephen. And I have your YouTube channel link down below. So do you want to share a little bit like about what you're doing, how people can connect and follow you? Sure. Yeah. So I have my YouTube channel. It's called Words of Life with Dr. Stephen Nemesh, a philosophy and theology podcast. Um, you can go to my website, stephennemesh.com. There you can find my CV and you can find links to all these papers that I've published on various topics. Um, I have a book that is under contract with Cambridge University Press, and it's going to be in the Cambridge Elements series. It's called Orthodoxy and Heresy. And that's basically what I'm talking about, the relationship between Orthodoxy and Heresy and Christian theology. It's gonna be one of those short introductory volumes, maybe 70, 80 pages uh, in the Cambridge Elements series. And I think when it first gets published, it'll be available for download for free. Uh, so that's something to look forward to. I have a book on the topic of the Eucharist that is currently under review with Cambridge University Press. So it has not been accepted for publication officially, uh, but it's being reviewed for publication. So they're going to determine whether they want it or not. Um, and I have a bunch of videos on my YouTube channel where I read basically segments from that book. Uh, and then I have also another book that I'm working on called uh, The Theology of the Manifest, which is a sort of a phenomenological uh, interpretation of, of Christian theology. And it's a kind of a summary of a lot of different things that I've been arguing in different places for the past few years. That one is in progress. It's not complete yet, but I have some videos on my YouTube channel where I read from the manuscript on that also. So there's a lot of material available on my YouTube channel and on my website. Man, it seems like you're doing nothing outside the occasional YouTube interview. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have a lot of work. Yeah, I, I try to keep busy. <laughs> well, thank you so much today, Stephen, for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. So, yeah, thank you so much. It's been a great time. So I really appreciate you and your work and everything you're doing. So thank you. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in. For Susan and Jono and Daniel and everyone else, we're so grateful for you and your time. And if you're new to the channel, I always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, and all that fun stuff. And if you value your content, you can become a patron at patreon.com. So I should hear in politics. But, yeah, that's it for today. So one last time, thank you so much, Stephen. It's been a good blast. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone. God bless.